This is The Wall Street Skinny, a podcast devoted to exploring the financial services industry and making the world of Wall Street accessible to everyone. Street Skinny with Kristen and Jen. This is Hi, Kristen. Friend. And hey, Jen. This is Hi. like the first time we've caught up on the, well, I, this isn't obviously the phone, but the first time we've caught up in two weeks. It it's has been, been so long. I've been going through <laughs> withdrawal after talking to you pretty much like every 30 seconds for the past mm-hmm. three months. Now all of a sudden to go this like long stretch of time so, without talking to you. And the reason, by the way, guys, is Jen was in Switzerland for two weeks. It was amazing. So I really yeah. hope that we uh, one day get to do a Wall Street skinny retreat there. Yay. It is such a phenomenal place. And I we crammed it. like six months worth of activity into two weeks. So it's mm. funny because like, you know, there's some vacations where you like lie on the beach or whatever and you're rested. Yeah. Yes. And usually we're beach people or rather we are pool in view of a beach people. But I, but you went <laughs> with your children. Hardship. It's, but yes. I think it's a kid thing. If you go with your kids, mm. that's where you feel like you have to be doing all the activities. You want them to experience everything. Or if it's your yeah. first time going somewhere, if you're not with your kids, I think, I know for me, I don't want to do anything. I don't want to be active. Right. I just want to sit my butt on the beach and drink some margaritas. But again, if you're going with your children, first of all, you're not going to be sitting on the beach drinking margaritas. You're a tiny terrorist dictator who's telling you that <laughs> they want a chicken nuggets, but now they're mad at you because it's not a hamburger or oh whatever. Speaking of food. So I did nothing but consume massive quantities of cheese. If Ooh. I ne- I know, and I love cheese, but if I never see cheese again, it will be too soon. Although I will say, <laughs> I, even as a child, never drank milk. I feel like we would go over to people's houses when we were kids and they'd be like, do you want pizza with milk or like <laughs> spaghetti and meatballs with milk? Yes. And I was like, yes. this is vile. I know people have talked about this. Raising kids now, it's constantly like, where's your water? Is your water full enough? Like, are you properly hydrated? Where's your fancy steel Yeti water bottle that you're toting around everywhere? I don't remember drinking water before the age of about 18. I think I was raised on like Sprite. And Coke. Weirdly, after coming back, yeah, I never liked Coke. After coming back from Switzerland, I went and bought a bottle of milk, Kristen, and poured myself a glass of milk before dinner last night. Never in my life. I don't know if this is like Swiss mind control, but like (laughs) it was, I don't know what's changed. Are the Swiss known for their milk? Oh my God. You just go. I know Swiss cheese, but like. Yeah. So you, well, it comes from these cows that are raised in better conditions than you and I, like (sighs) they live on these pastures. It is so green there. It is better than any filter on any social media platform. Just the color of the grass. It's like avatar. It's it's just out of control. And each cow has like 20 square miles to Rome, you know, and they're wandering around with their little cowbells on. And then, (laughs) I mean, you go to like a restaurant and you're like, oh, look at all the cows outside. How cute. Then you go in and they're like, here's the burger. And you're like, oh, oh." but then you're like, this is the best burger I've ever had. (laughs) Well, it's interesting because when we were growing up, kids were supposed to drink milk. I remember my parents gave me milk, which by the way, back then it was like the, the skim milk. Now, I won't give my kids skim milk. I'm like, no, you're getting the whole milk. But that's a whole separate thing. But there's so many people who are now anti-milk. And so, or you have to get the super fancy milk. My oldest daughter drank milk. My middle Mm. child was allergic to dairy. Now she's not, like she grew out of it. And then this baby needs to start drinking some some milk, but (laughs) that's a different story. It's almost like everything has become so polarizing and even milk is now polarizing. It's like, oh, you give your children milk, that's disgusting. Or it's like, oh, your kid has to have milk. Everything is polarizing. It's crazy, but yeah, milk is polarizing. How do you know what to do? When my kids stopped nursing, we started giving them some formula Mm. and we did a European goat formula because all of the crazy online research, like this is the easiest thing for them to digest. And we got very lucky. They never had any transition issues going Mm -hmm. from nursing to formula when they finally were done. But then we tried cow's milk one day and they were like, this is vile. Yes, so we gave them yes. goat's milk. Like once they graduated <laughs> from the goat milk formula, they were drinking goat milk. Oh, and I funny. mean, even if you just smell goat milk, it is 
Well, it's like like goat goat cheese. cheese. Yeah, Yeah, it has a different pungent. It's got Mm -hmm. like a very sharp taste to it. Yes. And so my kids were drinking goat milk, and I mean, I think I, I don't know. I never actually drank it myself. But were I to be stranded on a desert island with like nothing to drink, I still don't think I would drink goat's milk after smelling it. But we never gave them cow's milk. So now for me to be weirdly craving cow's milk, cow's I probably milk. have some like calcium deficiency yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because right? again, I was subsisting on like cheese and beer and red meat. I mean, it was amazing. The quality yeah. of the food was so high. And yeah. you know, you're walking like five to 10 miles a day anyways. You have wow. to go like source your stuff. But after two weeks in Switzerland, my children, who by the way, I don't know if it's like the re-entry and they are just aren't taking anything for granted anymore, but they have mm. transformed in the 48 hours since we've been home. They are delightful. They have oh, not, God. I think we burned them out on the iPad altogether. Because mm-hmm. we, we, they had nothing to do on, unfortunately, there's no direct flight from Charlotte to Zurich. Mm-hmm. So we had to connect in Philadelphia. And so there's an eight hour flight from Zurich to Philly, then a three hour layover. And then yeah. another, by the way, and then the flight time from Philly to Charlotte is two hours. I'm no mathematician, but the flight time from Charlotte to New York City is less than 90 minutes. So I was like, mm-hmm. how could this possibly take longer? And Smaller I didn't know plane. this. No, my husband explained to me. So they budget in this flight time. Sometimes mm. they make it artificially longer. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. On like yeah, yeah. The headline. I didn't yeah. know that. Oh, yeah. So yeah. they kept us on the runway for 25 minutes on each end of the trip. But they were like, we're on time. I was right. like, this is horrible. <laughs> well, yeah, they know that it's going to take a while. This is something within New York City. It's like, you know, it's going to take you like 40 minutes of sitting on the runway just to get out of the freaking place. So they right. budget that in. Right. They know. It's like budgeting in traffic. Even so, though, I feel like in my mind, the headline number is 90 minutes. Well, from the Charlotte other thing, too, Why is it, two hours from Philly? it depends on the route they take because you think, oh, oh they're going to fly here to here. Weather. Exactly. Yeah, so they have to fly weather. around weather. And when you fly around weather, obviously it makes the trip longer. And then there's also the tailwinds. My brother is a pilot. So right? I will check in with him. I mean, he's not like a commercial airline pilot. He just flies for fun. But I will call him if I have a flight. I'll be like, Brian, what is the chance of my getting back on time? Yeah. Uh, like, or what is the I chance of my know? flight taking off? John, actually, he was in New York for a couple of days this week and he flew back and there was these like ridiculous thunderstorms. So poor guy got in at like 3 a.m. <laughs> oh my God. Sitting in from Boston to New York. It was like, oh, I'm ah. so sorry. He probably could have just taken the train and been happier. Oh, it would, yeah. Um, dude, last night we were, were awoken by the apocalyptic sound of a like a pack or a herd or whatever you call them of coyotes. Oh, like fun. eating something. Right. Like right outside our front door. Jen, I was like, what is remember, that noise? You remember how Chloe oh, died. Chloe, I know. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to trigger it's you. Okay. I'm so sorry. Kristen's beloved dog, Chloe, met an unfortunate end at the jaws of a coyote in her backyard. Yeah. Oh, those things are vicious. But speaking of vicious, let's talk about the recruiting cycle. All right. So on today's podcast, what we're going to cover are two of probably the most high profile exits that you hear about from the sell side, right? So from investment banking. And there's tons of different exits. There's tons of things you can do. You can obviously stay working in investment banking and have an incredibly amazing career. But I think a lot of people here, private equity, they're going to work at private equity or going to work in a hedge fund as where they want to go because it's probably the most lucrative or it's perceived as being the most lucrative. It, it might actually not be. Let's back up a little bit here. We wanted to create a conversation about the broad landscape of exit opportunities, but because of the timeliness of what's happening in the private equity space specifically, today we're going to focus on exit opportunities in two primary sectors. Again, private equity, like Kristen mentioned already, and hedge funds. So often people think about working at an investment bank as a stepping stone to something else. And we're just Mm going to cover two of those something else's. (laughs) This is something that Jen and I have wanted to cover private equity and hedge funds for a while now, because it is so heavily asked about in our DMs and in our emails. But We wanted to do it this week. I mean, the reason that it is super topical is the process of what's called on-cycle private equity recruiting by a lot of these like mega funds essentially kicked off and wrapped up last week. Now, why does that matter? There is this process 
for private equity recruiting. And there's what's called on-cycle recruiting. And then there's off-cycle recruiting. But the on-cycle recruiting is like your mega funds, right? These are like the largest of the private equity firms, the most prestigious, where people are probably earning the most amount of money. And so they actually start recruiting. This year, it started before people... Some, some had gone through training. Many had not even gone through training. So you have a, someone who just graduated from college. They are, what, 22, 21? You would have been 21, 21 John. Yeah. 21 years old. They have an offer. They're going to work at an investment banking for two years. And before they've even hit the desk, like I thought it was crazy when they started to push it so far that you hadn't had a, a performance review. Now, you are now being asked to go through the interview process for these private equity jobs that aren't going to start for two years. And this is a process, by the way, that is kicked off and then wrapped up in like 48 hours. It is a fast process. It's like kind of comes out of nowhere. So it was because of the spark of, holy crap, they're recruiting for these things now in July and people haven't even gone through training that we want to get into. Yes. What's so crazy that Kristen touched on a little bit is the fact that you now have to make a decision about what you want to do two years from now with yeah. zero experience in the actual field that you have signed up right. for at I the age where you're barely yeah. even legal to drink in America. I, I think what's disappointing about it is that if your dad or your mom don't currently work in private equity, or you're not at like a Wharton or like a Darden, you're not studying business as an undergrad, this whole world of financial services industry is new to you. And you're now getting these firms coming on campus and recruiting, and you don't know what anything means. And how are you supposed to know about this glorious private equity exit? Which by the way, we'll get into at the end. Is this the golden, what's it called? The castle on a hill? The shining yeah, is it, beacon is on a it, hill? Is exactly. it what everyone hypes it up to be? Because that's a whole separate conversation entirely. Right. But there are going to be people that they do want that. And if you have missed that train, it's already left the station before you even knew that the train was coming. And I just, it's surprising to me that it's like now they're recruiting so early because people that could be fantastic, they don't have the right pedigree. They didn't go to the right school. They didn't get into the right group for no fault of their own. They could be the best candidate there is. They just didn't know. And um, I'm not going to rant too much about this, but... No, I think it's a really important thing to touch on because as the market has grown so increasingly competitive, yeah. you're now expected to know what you want to be when you quote unquote grow up. Right. I mean, what? In in middle school, we literally got a message from someone who is an, a rising freshman in high school saying, what do I need to do to prepare myself for a career in finance? Jen and I, I were mean, like, are you allowed to be on TikTok? I don't I know. know. And, and honestly... I admire the ambition of these kids, but the whole mission of our podcast is to make this world accessible to everyone from all backgrounds. And the reality is, is with the structures that are being put in place in the recruiting cycle, right. you need to have had internships starting pretty much your freshman year in college to put yeah. you on the right track to then mm -hmm. interview for a job that you might have two to three years hence immediately upon a graduating while you have an offer for another job. Well, and it's interesting because it sounds like what's happening with a lot of these private equity firms is it's like, they know that the other firms are going to start recruiting. It's almost like game theory. They yeah. all are like, well, we need the best candidates. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know how you judge quote unquote best when no one has any work experience. They haven't had a performance review and they haven't worked on a deal. Like It's okay. all box checking on a resume. It's, right. did you go to the right school? Did you have the right summer internship? Are you now in a full-time position at one yep. of the top six firms in the right that we like group. to recruit from? Right, in the right, right group. Right. And it's funny because when I started, I mean, a couple of things. A, Jen, when you and I started, this whole private equity exit was not seen the same way. It I was think a sales totally and trading, different market environment. Yes, it was a different market environment. Sales and trading was definitely seen as like, quote unquote, sexier. Now, mm -hmm. when I started, I did ultimately think, oh, private equity is interesting to me just because when I was in CDOs, I was like, well, structuring these bonds is not what I find exciting. I find the companies more exciting. I find the story. And so I was more interested in banking. And actually I was, or I thought I was interested in private equity. And so I did ultimately move into financial sponsors, but even when I moved in, so they had this formal third year rotation program, you could go in the private equity firms. They don't want to recruit the third year analyst who figured out partway through that they wanted this thing. 
They want right. the first year incoming analyst who just tap it. You know what I mean? And so, it's so like, even 15 years ago, yeah, the mm-hmm. the recruiting cycle was insane. It wasn't relative as crazy, to, but yeah, yes. relative to other exit opportunities. Yeah. that wanted someone yes. who was a little bit more seasoned, have proven mm-hmm. themselves, who maybe yes. came from a less direct path. It yes. was insane then. It has taken on kind of a fever pitch today. What we're going to talk about today, first of all, just to be very clear, though we are focusing on just private equity firms and hedge funds, we don't want to do that at the exclusion of all other exit opportunities. We will do many more episodes talking about other exit opportunities from the sell side, from a traditional investment bank. And we have Susie's interview that came out on going to be like a VP at a tech startup. We have the interview that we did with Brian, which I think will be coming out in a couple of weeks. Probably about in a month, talking about going into asset management and an investment manager, what that's like. We've talked to Helen Dyan, who became an entrepreneur who started her own business after leaving the financial services industry. And we've got many more guests. Yeah, we both started businesses. I exited the financial services industry altogether. And then it's like the godfather, right? I tried to get out when they pulled me back in. We actually Um, did talk about this, about how Jen was like, I actually didn't love it, but it was hard to leave because the pay is so good that it becomes mm -hmm. this almost like golden handcuffs. And there's so much deferred compensation that it makes it hard to leave. Now people also, you are like living on a different planet. Mm -hmm. You're speaking a language and interacting with such an insular set of people who are all doing something similar and all talking about the same thing. It's like living in New York. Each of these things is the same thing. It's this bubble and this culture that you become so deeply steeped in. My best friend, Laura, her mom has a great saying that if you put a cucumber in brine long enough, it's going to become a pickle. And she uses that to talk about like from a negative standpoint, right? If you hang out with the wrong people, eventually kind of become Uh. like them. But the way I think of it is I wasn't someone who saw myself as being a finance person, but I was steeped in it long enough that I was like, well, what else am I? What what Mm -hmm. else could I possibly be? And it turns out apparently I was also a real estate agent, but like- Yeah. And all these different things. But you get these blinders on when you're in the financial services industry and you're like, well, I just need to continue to level up within this sector because that's all I know. That's all I'll ever be. And it's the same thing when you're living in New York. You're like, oh, well, I guess I'm just going to go from like a one bedroom to a two bedroom to like maybe a three bedroom or maybe I will move to like Bronxville. But it's hard to envision yourself packing up and moving to Idaho because you're like, what do I know about Idaho? where we're going with all this is there is such a wide range of opportunities available to you that you may not know about. Just like wherever you may be coming from now, you might not know what opportunities are available to you on Wall Street. So we're trying to educate you about both ends of the spectrum. The reality is people who are on the inside, who are in that bubble right now, so many of them are focused on private equity and hedge funds. So that's why yep. we're going to dig into yes. it now. And yes. for those of you who don't know what either of these things are, let's recap a little yep. bit. Yep. You're in luck. We have an episode <laughs> called, What is a Hedge Fund? And yep. we interviewed someone who worked not only at, but for the head of the largest hedge fund in the world. So feel free to go back and listen to that episode. Mm -hmm. He can explain it a lot better than we can. And we haven't done an episode on what is private equity yet, but we will do one in the future. And we we touched on it. We have touched on it a little in our succession episode a little bit. And then also in the deep dive into investment banking, just because obviously I was speaking it from the perspective of working in the financial sponsors group, helping with private equity firms do LBOs, but it wasn't from the perspective of someone who actually works in private equity. So we are going to get someone on who we can talk, who works in private equity and can obviously speak to that. But we're going to be a little bit higher level here, just explaining what the difference is, because there are differences between hedge funds and private equity. Very big differences. Yes. yes. Even though it's funny because like, Recently, they've started to converge a little bit. The they've started to look more and more like one another because yes. the environment's getting increasingly competitive and you're like, right, I can do everything. So back up. <laughs> All right. So just a quick recap, right? Yes. So a private equity firm is a pool of capital that is used to make investments in companies. They invest in those companies, usually buying a controlling stake in them. They typically restructure them in some way to make them more valuable, and then they sell them down the road at a profit. There's actually two buckets of private equity firms. You have the growth equity, 
which people often think of as private equity as well. I mean, it is where these are funds that are investing in earlier stage companies, right? These are mm-hmm. not investing in like dinosaurs. We have a video on this. We talked about this in the succession podcast. Yeah. So they're investing in companies that are not as mature. They're actually kind of like later stage venture capital. So they're earlier in the growth trajectory. If and- you remember our episode with mm-hmm. Susie Korb, where we talked about the series of funding, going yeah. A, B, C, D, yeah. E, F, G. If you're doing your seed round or your series A funding, mm-hmm. you're probably not eligible yet for growth equity, but somewhere between that series A and series P. (laughs) Right. So when you think about venture capital, there's different types of funds. They will invest at different series. And so as you get further along, you might say late stage venture capital, that starts to look a lot like growth equity. Now, there are some distinctions. I'm not going to get into them. But the point is that the investment you're doing in growth equity is going to look a little bit different than what we think of as like the more classic leverage buyout strategy, which is where you buy a company primarily funded with debt, And you go in and you make a lot of changes to the operations. Like working in private equity, you are actually changing the company. You're working on cutting costs. Talk about that a little bit. Yes. So you are a operations person. You are if think about the house, you're the fixer upper. Like yeah. yeah. I mean, you're gonna have seats on the board of these companies. You are dealing with Stewie in succession. Like you're involved, right? You're you're getting your hands dirty. Exactly. Okay, but a hedge fund by comparison. Now that's a pool of capital as well. They can invest that money based on whatever their particular strategy is, but hedge funds can have all different kinds of strategies. So you've got equity long short hedge funds, which are kind of like the classic hedge fund that a lot of people outside of the markets know about, global macro hedge funds, which express a view on, we call it global for a reason, right? (laughs) Huge global themes. Like what do you think of the US versus China? Not what do you think of bond A versus bond V, which is more of a relative value strategy. There's relative value hedge funds. You've got credit-based hedge funds. You've got convertible arbitrage hedge funds. And then keep in mind that hedge funds, they can invest not only in pretty much anything, but they can also invest in companies just like private equity firms can, either through the global equity markets or as activist investors in Mm -hmm. individual companies. So so a hedge fund has much more flexibility in what it can invest in, but the chief difference that we actually think of between a private equity firm and a hedge fund is their investment horizon, meaning right. the timeline for their investment. Right. So hedge funds are typically evaluated on their annual return, and that's usually the product of some shorter-term trades where they're in and out of the markets and some longer-term trades which are being marked to market for kind of their current market value. Right. All right. A private equity firm they're going to invest with a much longer horizon. It's typically five years is kind of the benchmark that we talk about. Yeah. Yeah, Five to seven years. It can be longer depending on the scope of the investment. Which makes sense because they're buying the company and they're trying to change the business. That takes time to do, right? It takes time Mm -hmm. to implement. If you are cutting cutting people's pay. Changing strategy. Right. Um, so there's a lot of other differences that we will get into some of those in yeah. more detail. Well, I was going to say, because of that different time horizon, it actually creates some other kind of unique things that make just the business model. Like if you work in private equity, you're kind of set up for success a little bit better. The bottom line is that many people in the financial services industry think that these two jobs are super sexy right now with private equity in the lead. And the question is why, right? Why are these jobs so prestigious and desirable? Well, listen. First of all, it's the fact that you have the opportunity to potentially make a lot of money. Just to give you guys a sense of scale, we're talking seven, eight, or nine figure type of money at the highest echelons, potentially as early as like 10 years into your career. So and seven figures easily a couple years into your career. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So you could be making over a million dollars, if not over $10 million by the age of 25, potentially, depending on who you are and what your role is and what firm you've landed at. The allure of that kind of money is pretty much reserved for what? elite athletes who mm-hmm. need to have the kind of gift that you can't learn or actors or there are Kim so Kardashian. Many entrepreneurs out there who are trying to get a lotto ticket, right? By yeah. having the great idea and a great company and have some kind of exit path for that. But right. man, you better have the next WhatsApp or whatever it is, or else you're going to be struggling for a very, very long time without right. much reward, if ever. Mm -hmm. The private equity and hedge fund space, we're talking about an opportunity to make a ton of money very quickly. And you're also at the top of the food chain, especially within the financial services industry. I mean, with all the different divisions of a bank, the commercial bank, investment bank, you've got the investment banking division, capital markets division, sales and trading division, prime brokerage, which we haven't even touched on, research. For all of these different divisions, if you are 
at a private equity firm or a hedge fund, you are the client, okay? You're mm-hmm. the one getting taken out to dinner. Everyone's fawning all over you. Everyone is working for you. You don't mm-hmm. have to answer to anybody except for your investors. And that's really, really nice. It is nice to be the shark at the top of the food chain, okay? So I think we should now dive into how the heck do you break into this? So let's talk about the specific paths. So if you want to break into private equity and your goal is to go work at like the mega funds, the most prestigious, you basically need to know what you want to do as like a freshman in college. And why do you need to know that? So the reason you need to know that is because as you've said before, and I think it's disappointing that this is the case, but unfortunately is, if you want to get to the most prestigious, you are going to be- The mega funds. The mega funds. Yeah. And how many mega funds, quote unquote, would you say there are 10? Blackstone, KKR, Carlisle, Apollo, Mm -hmm. Bain, Providence. um, And to be clear, this is not an exhaustive list of all the private (laughs) equity firms out there. No. These are are the ones- There are tons of private equity firms. Right. And these are the ones that you need to know at infancy that you want to join. Right. This is not- saying this is the only path into private equity, but we're starting yes. with these big guys yes. because they have the most rigorous recruiting process. And so so you need to get the right internships. And by the way, so maybe it's not freshman year, but like sophomore year, I mean, if you want to get into the right group as like a junior, I mean, a lot of times I think you need to have an internship sophomore year. The places that these private equity firms are going to be recruiting from are your bulge bracket. So like your Morgan Stanley, your JP Morgan, your Goldman Sachs. And your elite boutiques, so like the Lazards, the Evercores, but then also from consulting. So they actually will mm-hmm. hire out of consulting. Why do they like consulting? Well, remember back to what we said, you're ultimately doing, you are fixing businesses. You're what do consultants do? The direction they fix the businesses. Right. Yeah. So they do tend to like that. Now, if you are in, say, like an MA group, if you are in the financial sponsors group, leverage finance in capital markets, depending on like what you're doing, those mm-hmm. are also going to be sort of extra credit. And also they tend to want the people that went to kind of the top schools, which. Mm-hmm. So you have basically a matrix to think about. It's what's your quote unquote pedigree, meaning yeah. what is your educational background? Now, yeah. what work experience do you have? Even though it's not real work, it's internships. Because they're recruiting in, say, July, right after you've graduated. So you graduated May. Now you're recruiting in July. I mean, you're not going to have deal experience aside from what you did in your internship. I keep saying this. Like, you might not have even gone through training it. And by the way, that is a big deal because if you haven't learned it, if someone hasn't sat down and said, this is how you build an LBO, can you learn this stuff? Sure. I mean, and that's why we're putting it out there. Yes, you can learn it, but you're not getting the reps in. And by the way, in the interview process. So you are totally unproven product. But Mm -hmm. you are being evaluated almost exclusively on the line items on your resume. So, so many people ask us about breaking into the industry or whatever. These are the things that are not easy to break into, unfortunately, at least at these mega funds. Right. We have spoken to a number of you who have non-traditional backgrounds who are working at private equity funds. There is a path, but the door to these mega funds may be closed to you if you don't have the quote-unquote right boxes checked on your resume. And that's devastating. And I want to also touch on that too, because look, if you want to work in private equity, your only option is not just Blackstone or KKR. There are tons of private equity firms. And Jen and I were talking about this. They're a dime a dozen. One of my good friends just started a private equity fund. Like, There's lots of firms that are out there. It's not just these elite ones. But a lot of people, when they say, I want to go work in private equity, this is oftentimes what they mean. Well, going to listen, work at some of these. The reality or, or is, middle, is they want that asymmetrical rate. upside. Yes. The highest likelihood of that asymmetrical upside in the current environment in 2023 is working for one of these mega funds. Yeah. However, that doesn't mean that you couldn't go to a smaller mm-hmm. fund that isn't located in New York or that is located right. in New York. It could be located anywhere. And have a huge multi-million dollar payday. And you don't have to go through the super hyped up, crazy recruiting cycles that are happening. How many seats would you say there are in like an incoming class? I mean, I would say between three and 10, but I I need to look this up. I don't know for sure. So to give people an an accurate picture of scale, if an average incoming investment banking analyst class is between 50 to 100 people, depending on the size of the bank, and an average incoming class into one of these private equity funds is 10, Mm -hmm. right? And there's 10 mega funds, okay? They could literally fill up all seats with one analyst class from one bank. Yeah. So think about how competitive it's going to be for those limited seats across all of the investment banks 
that are kind of the elite ones that are being recruited from. And think about just simply how few opportunities there are. And mm-hmm. that's why it's so insane. And that's why they can get away with all this. Right. I, I don't know if it's because they worry that like these other funds are going to snap up the good talent. It's like there's so much talent out there. You just don't even know what's there because you haven't let it develop. Do you know yeah, what I mean? I agree. That's what's I so would much surprising. rather it's see like, proven product yeah. than just be competing for someone who has the right names on their resume. Right. You guys I mean, want to apply for a job at the Wall Street Skinny? Okay, we're not going to choose you just based on what school you went to. We also can't pay you, so please don't apply for a job. <laughs> we did have someone who did say they were like, oh, I are you know, hiring? It's really so sweet. sweet. Yeah. No, we're um, not hiring. We can't even pay ourselves. But I know. We do have expenses. <laughs> if you yeah. want to help pay the expenses, you're more than welcome to join. And actually, sorry, I'm going to back up and say one more thing that a lot of times people will say, can I get an MBA and then go into private equity? And the answer is usually no, because- Unlike with investment banking, where there is formal recruiting out of an MBA program, what happens in private equity, so you do two years as an analyst, you go two years private equity. This they is the mega fund. Yeah. They will then pay for you to go back to business school, and then you come back and you work in private equity. And so they are not going to be hiring someone out of an MBA class that doesn't have the prior experience in private equity. You got to have previously. something. Yeah. You need investment banking experience, but usually you actually need the private equity experience coming out of an MBA. So that just goes back to what we said before, which is like, you basically need to know as an infant that you want to go into private equity, which is very unfortunate because a lot of people don't. We'll put a pin in that because you are not like missing out on this amazing life if you're not going into private equity. But I know that it's something people often are clamoring for. So we do want to address it. Now, what about hedge funds? There's more opportunities to get in because there's lots of different strategies. So you could go into sales and trading and then come out and go work at a hedge fund. And And by the way, when you say sales and trading, it doesn't just mean trading. Right. So many of the most successful people that I know at hedge funds started in sales. So you don't have to follow this really, really narrow path to go to the buy side at a hedge fund. If you end up at the right hedge fund, you're 24 making over a million dollars. It's insane. Well, yeah. And, and let's yeah. talk about right hedge fund. So yeah. there's a number of different ways that you get paid at a hedge fund. That's And it's... there's a number of different ways that you get paid in private equity. But generally speaking, the biggest difference between the way you get paid at a hedge fund and the way you're going to get paid at private equity is determined by how much you individually contribute. So at a hedge fund, If you are, let's say, a young portfolio manager, most hedge funds aren't going to say, here's a billion dollars, go knock yourself out and see how it goes. They'll start you with a small pool of capital and then they'll move you up based on your proven results. But if you are very, very good, you can sometimes take a small pool of capital and make a lot of money. Or you get really great and they trust you more and you have proven results and then they give you more and more and more capital, right? They'll give you as much rope as you want to hang yourself with as long as you keep proving that you can make that money grow. At a private equity firm, by comparison, the fee structure is different and it's less about an individual's contribution to the bottom line. There's a much more flat pay structure there, if you will versus the outsized pay structure for an individual that can happen within a hedge fund. Either way, either a hedge fund or a private equity firm has to have a great year in order for <laughs> you to get paid that huge payday. So right. if you're the best trader at a hedge fund that blows up, it doesn't really matter, right? <laughs> yes. um, if you're the best deal maker at a, at a private equity firm that can't get a deal done, it doesn't matter. But if you're at a hedge fund that's doing well, and you are a great trader, great portfolio manager, great research analyst who's coming up with the best trades, awesome. Sky's the limit for you. Right. So that's kind of the the distinction I wanted to make there when you talk about going to the right fund. That yeah. fund doesn't have to be a super fund. That fund doesn't have to be one of the well, select you know, few. It was funny because when we were talking to Paul on the What is a Hedge Fund episode, who, by the way, if you haven't listened, this is someone who worked at Bridgewater, which is currently the largest fund in the world by assets under management. And he was like, yeah, when I started, Ray Dalio wasn't doing that well. Like it it wasn't, it wasn't what it became. And so you can go to a fund that initially doesn't have as much assets under management, but then happens to be at the right strategy and the right time. And you can obviously kill it. And we're going to also talk a little more later about like right time because private equity in the last 15 years, right place, right time. 
So, okay. So how else can you get into a hedge fund? There are different roles at hedge funds. You could be on the sort of investor relations or marketing side where you are the person going out, raising the capital. Again, the only yeah. people that you report to are your investors. Yes. You're also managing those relationships when yeah. the fund isn't doing that well. So oh, yeah. there's a little oh, yeah. bit of that too. <laughs> All right. So there's obviously these different roles. So the investor relations side, more like the business development side, and then you have the research analysts and the portfolio managers. It can obviously vary how you get from point A which is like, if you ultimately want to be a portfolio manager, Jen and I were talking about this, that coming from the trading side, if someone is a really good trader at a bank, they can get hired as a portfolio manager, like directly yes. from the sell side. Right. That is not really as common if you're coming out of IBD. A lot of times you're going to be hired and you're going to start and you're going to go in as a research analyst who is supporting a portfolio manager. And then if you are constantly like coming up with these best ideas, then you will be promoted to portfolio manager. And the distinction between research analyst and portfolio manager, I mean, there are some funds where there's only one portfolio manager and you are always a research analyst. So these titles can vary fund to fund, but out of investment banking, you're probably going to be going into more of a equity long short type fund, whereas out of sales and trading- Because you're, you're an expert in studying because companies. Because you're, exactly. You're an expert in analyzing these companies, studying these companies, and coming up with what you think the valuation is. And so that's why equity long short is kind of like where you will ultimately go. And then we obviously spoke with Steve Haggerty on a prior episode talking about equity research. It is not as common to go to a hedge fund if you are in research, which I was joking with Steve. I was like, it's kind of counterintuitive because you are actually the one who is doing a lot of these analyses and the bankers kind of steal what research does a lot. But as he put it, if you're working in research on the sell side, your focus is oriented. much more marketing oriented. Mm -hmm. And so you're not so much someone who is taking risk. And so it's a different skill set. So if you are further along in your career, it can be a lot harder. And Steve did it, but it can be definitely a lot harder. You can make the switch, but you'd have to be the one driving the bus and showing yeah. a hedge fund why you aren't just another sell side research analyst, because they're going to want to break down how you've been taught and teach you how to work in a bank. And actually, Jen, did I ever tell you this? When I was teaching a class in Boston, this was like five mm -hmm. or 10 years ago, I actually had someone who came to my class because they wanted to hire someone at my firm because they're like, well, these people are clearly great at building models. And so the guy, he was a COO at that firm, which is a very good firm. And he was like, are you interested? And I was like, oh, but I'm kind of like what I do and I'm happy living in New York. And then ironically, it's like I end up moving to Boston. But yeah, there can be non-traditional ways to get into hedge funds. So yes. that was the point of the story. Because at a hedge fund, you kind of eat what you kill. Yes. Right? Yeah. It is all performance-based. So if you can demonstrate skill, mm -hmm. great they'll yeah. take a chance on you or they're much more likely to take a chance on you. Now, actually going through the interview process. It's a rigorous interview manager. process. Right. Yeah, exactly. it is like rigorous. It'll, it'll differ, but you know, you'll likely be asked to construct a sample portfolio, scenario analyses on the portfolio management side. If you are coming out of investment banking, going to say an equity long short fund, they're going to probably send you some financials. They're going to ask you to look at the financials, write an investment thesis, right. build a model. You're proving that you can analyze a company and mm -hmm. come up with a thesis about it. So they're just going to ask you about one company versus building a portfolio of, say, 20 companies. That, that was what I, companies. that was what I, yeah, but they look at investments on like usually an investment by investment basis, yeah, yeah, yeah. unless it's maybe like some kind of relative value. They no, want to make sure that you can come up with a thesis on this company. At what price would you buy? At what price would you sell? What is your time horizon? What are some things that could obviously impact the value? Like they want to see how you think about a particular companies. Mm -hmm. And so the point is that there's almost like a take-home exam, right? And look, all hedge funds are different. They all recruit different. And so... And by the way, talking about recruiting, hedge funds employ headhunters? As do private equity firms. Right, right, right. Yeah. So headhunters are very much involved in the recruiting process for private Think equity about them and like for real hedge estate funds. agents yeah. for the investment banking world, right? They <laughs> yes, are... Yes. A, a fund will say, hey, I need the best and brightest in the whatever it is, in the relative value space. And they'll say, okay, yeah. great. Well, I know... 10 guys who trade the belly of the yield curve mm -hmm. at these elite banks, I'm going to go call all of them and see who's unhappy. <laughs> right. right. Or right. go to do. another fund. I mean, they could also look at another hedge fund and be like, One we could make it more percent. interesting. And there's so much cross-pollination back and forth between the sell side and the buy side in hedge fund space. So mm -hmm. you can go work at a hedge fund for a few years, go back to the sell side, go back to a hedge fund, go back to the sell side. I know so many people who have done that and managed those oh, tra really? transitions seamlessly. Wow. 100%.
Mm-hmm. When you work on the buy side, you obviously build relationships with the sell side and vice versa. And I will um, add, just because you're working in a hedge fund doesn't mean you're going to make more than you would make working on the sell side. It depends on, the performance depends on the performance of the fund. Exactly. So at the end of the day, I mean, like working at a hedge fund is not necessarily going to be the end all be all. And you might decide that you would do better going back on this, on the sell side. But, right. um, or again, if your fund blows up or you don't have a good year, whatever, yeah. you can read the writing on the wall. Yeah. You can take that prestige and clout and proven track record and go back to the sell side and say, Hey, I'd be great at X, Y, Z here. And then after a few years, go through the whole process again. Whereas there's far less cross-pollination between the private equity realm and the sell side in terms of people going back to the sell side. Your fund would probably have to blow up. And that's not that common these days in the private equity space. And let's talk about that. Why? Let's talk about the relative trade-offs between private equity and hedge funds in terms of the structure. So first, let's talk about the fee structure. Yeah. Okay. So let's actually talk about the structure of a private equity fund versus a hedge fund. Because I mean, at the end of the day, this is one thing that right now private equity has a little bit of an edge for a couple of very structural reasons. So first of all, both funds are going to have that two and 20 type of model. And so what that means is that if you raise a billion dollars, 2% of that is going in your pocket every year just to manage the money. Now, the way though that these funds make the killing is because if you turn that $1 billion into $3 billion, you are going to get 20% of the upside. So 20% of the $2 billion, that is yours for that performance. So that's how they make all the money. Now, because the last 15, 15 years, since 2008, it has been low interest rates. I mean, rates were 0%. It is so cheap to borrow. That is also fueling valuations of equity. And by the way, you are in private equity. If you are able to, le- it would be like value Look at home gone prices, crazy, right? Exactly. You've been in a low interest rate environment, right? right. And home prices have gone through the roof. Exactly. Right? So it's the same way. So in the last fifteen years, if you are in private equity, you've been killing it because the value of these companies are going up, and you are borrowing for free. You're levering it up, and now you have just made a shit ton of money. That is not necessarily going to be the case in the future, right? Rates have gone up. There is this inverted yield. Like, is there going to be a recession? Sorry, like- just, just to talk to you, what we're talking about here in a few weeks, again, we're going to be airing uh, an <laughs> interview with Brian Weinstein, who was a client of mine at BlackRock, who now runs fixed income at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. So we were talking about the shape of the yield curve with him. That's something that if you don't understand now, hopefully you'll understand after that episode. Rates are up, which means that theoretically the value of your equity is like should come down. And there's also exactly a possibility right. of That's a exactly recession. That's exactly right. Yes. So, oh, it's more expensive to borrow money. It's more expensive to borrow money. So again, it means that it's going to eat into the returns. And actually, this is something that we didn't talk about, but I'm just going to throw it out there. In the 2017 tax change, there actually was a change in the way that interest is deducted. And so you actually some LD, depending on how much debt you take on, might have to pay tax on your interest. That is a minor point, but it was something worth noting. Oh, yeah. So yeah, I want to say, so back to the two and 20. So Right now, because hedge funds over the last 15 years, they haven't necessarily done as well. They haven't just been like levered long the equity market. There's lots of different strategies. They are paid, Mm -hmm. by the way, in many cases to not be correlated to the market. And so not all funds have done that well, which means that they have had to compress fees. So private equities, more maybe are two and 20 and hedge funds as well. It it depends on the fund. It totally depends on the fund. And there's different Mm -hmm. products at funds where they have different fees, but the fees are potentially a little lower at hedge funds. Again, not always if you are Whereas, at But private Citadel, equity has not really not. been subject to fee compression right. because everyone's making money hand over fist pretty yeah. much without exception. Yes. If you haven't made money at a private equity firm in the past 15 years, let me put it this way, you're doing it wrong. Right. <laughs> I don't know what you're buying, but... <laughs> don't get me wrong. It's not like I could do it, but... <laughs> oh, me neither. Actually, me neither. I cut out for this stuff. <laughs> me neither. Sorry. Yeah, no. Let's be clear. We sound like we're getting super snooty here. No, no. I could yeah, not do this. Myself. I could not do this either. But again, no. I Nor would I want be to. able to get into college these days, let alone get a job on the trading floor, <laughs> let alone get into one of these private equity right. firms. I'm- okay. So we talked about fees and how private equity has potentially a little bit of an edge just given the performance of the past, call it 15 years. The second thing is in 2000, I think it was 2017 that this happened, but there's something called this carried interest loophole. Now, what is that? So back to the two and 20 that we talked about, right? 2% of assets that you you make the fees, 2% of call it the billion dollars, and then you get 20% of that 2 billion if you go from one to $3 billion. So there was this quote unquote loophole as a tax loophole that said, essentially that $2 billion of money you made you get to pay long-term capital gains on it, which is lower than ordinary income. 
So if you were a portfolio manager, if you were a partner in a private equity firm and you've made like this $2 billion, it's going to go to the partners. It becomes their income. They don't have to pay 50% taxes. They're paying, call it 15% or whatever long-term capital gains. Now in 20, I think it was 2017, they closed that loophole for investments. I think that was like less than three years. And so that basically is most hedge funds. Maybe two years. Okay. The point is that essentially if you are investing the way a hedge fund does, you now do not essentially get to take advantage of that tax loophole. In the, what was it? The Inflation Reduction Act, they tried to close it for private equity too, because private equity, they have this like five-year time horizon. They get to do that deduction and they tried to close that loophole. So that was last year. Kristen Cinema, who was like the Arizona senator, mm-hmm. for whatever reason, like that was the hill she was going to die on. It was like, you will not close this loophole. So it is still alive and well, right? It is still, if you work at a private equity shop, your tax rate is that long-term capital gains, not ordinary income. So a partner mm-hmm. at a private equity firm who's getting that money, they're going to pay a lower tax rate. Now, the third thing is we talk about liquidity and, and lockups when it comes to the structure of these funds. People's investments. Right. So if you are not getting, the investments that the fund is making. Right, not the funds. This is if you are this is the limited partners fund and yes. you are giving your money to a private equity firm yeah. versus a hedge fund. Are you your, have a different lockups? Exactly. You are a super wealthy individual. You are making <laughs> millions and millions of dollars. And you say, you know what? I need to invest my money. I want to invest it with a private equity firm. Great you are going to now lock up your capital for longer. By the way, touch that money no matter what happens to it, no matter they do with it. Yes. Because they're buying companies. They can't just have people pull that money out just because like, oh, you know, my kid's going to college. I need it back. Yeah. Yeah. I need my money back. (laughs) With a hedge fund, the lockup periods are different. Hedge funds can vary. Different funds have different lockups. They can have wildly different lockups, but they're probably not going to have a lockup for five to 10 years that your private equity firm is. And so the lockups can be, they could be daily. You could decide, I want to pull my money out today. Great. It could be a few years and maybe you can take some out, but then the rest of it is locked up for a few more years. But the point though is it's not as long. And so yeah, most means funds that I would say are somewhere between daily and one few, year as far yeah, as, yeah, yeah, as far as yeah. how long it's going to, if you really decide that you want to make a redemption, yeah. you likely will be able to get your money out in the span of a few months, maybe not all of it but at least right. some portion of it. It just yeah. depends. What that also means is that there is bad performance in a hedge fund and you're like, oh, this looks like it's not doing well. I want to pull my money out. That hedge fund's assets under management could go from five to a billion. Right. In You'll have a compounded a, impact mm-hmm. of both lower returns, that overall pile of money shrinking as it loses yeah. money, and then the knock-on effect of people losing confidence and withdrawing their money. We've talked exactly. about runs on the bank before. Yeah, it's <laughs> the same idea. Through runs on the bank. So that's why you might hear, and that's why you might hear the fund blew up. You could have an investment strategy where, like, maybe they've made all the right bets. There's been a dip in the market, and if they'd held on for longer, it could have recovered and done great. But if you have people pulling their money out before then, it doesn't matter. You're not going to stay around long enough. Like that was like long-term capital management. If anyone's read that mm-hmm. book, right? Right. So. What was Gizzed. that? When Genius Failed? Was yeah. that what the book was yeah, yeah, called? Yeah. When Genius yeah. Failed. When Genius Failed. Yeah. Just in case anyone does want to read it. That is another difference between private equity versus hedge fund. It does mean that if you work in private equity and the fund structure set up that way, you have longer longevity and like you can so potentially even if you're crappy, down. you stick around yes. yeah. <laughs> versus people can't get money back. Yeah. Yeah. You got to pay the piper and there's a lot more accountability at hedge funds for performance. It's much more performance yeah. based. Also though, so with a hedge fund, you can actually see the performance. There's if you're investing in private equity, transparency. these are private companies. I mean, you don't know what the value of that business that they bought is. They right? can say it is whatever they want it to be. I mean, you hire, that's not true. I mean, there are independent business valuation experts yes. who yes. literally do this for a living. Yes. They yeah. will come and tell you what the marked market valuation of a private yes. company that doesn't trade is. But I mean- But again, there is subjectivity there. I mean, you could look so, at- Oh, so much subjectivity. Yeah. You make the assumption like, oh, you know, this discount rate for my DCF, we lower the discount rate a little bit. Look, that, that valuation looks a little bit better. I'm not saying that's what happened, but there is subjectivity. It all works in the face favor of private equity firms right, right now. It yeah. really does. Yeah. It, it means that they hold on to money longer and they're less subject to the whims of their investors. Right. We said it before, they are the only people that these funds answer to. Yeah. So if you have the most favorable structure with respect to your investors, that's going to work in your favor. Right. So those are all things that obviously are in the pro-private equity column. As we said, there could be a change with the carried interest loophole that could close. Oh, you the, never know. The, the world can change from one the world second can change, to the next. Yes. 
by the way, the sexy thing to do when we both started in the business was to be a prop trader at a bank. Uh, right. You know any prop traders at banks these days? Oh, no. They're not. No. They're regulated it's out of existence. Illegal. Exactly. Yes. You get on the wrong side of politicians, whatever it may be, public perception. And let's talk about public perception a little bit too, because yeah. I think that talking about that shift brings up another good point, which is, you know, back in 2007, 2006, when we first started in the business, hedge funds were the big sexy thing out there. Trading Mm -hmm. in a bank was the big sexy thing out there. And then the world blew up in 2008. There were legitimate things that went wrong, but public perception turned against trading at hedge funds and at banks and has never really turned back in a favorable light. What's funny is that if you look at what a private equity firm does, they go into your ex ABC. Yeah. Yeah, they go into a company that you may know and love and they rip it to shreds. They cut headcount, most likely. They may cut benefits. They change how the thing is run. Their goal is just getting the last possible dollar squeezed out of that company. That is all perfectly legal, mm-hmm. but in an environment where everyone is much more, I think, ethically charged and sensitive these days, private equity isn't exactly going out and- Making uh, the lives of the people who work at these businesses better. I'll put it that way. It is exactly. not, that is not what it is doing. <laughs> Right. So if you work at a company that's been taken over by a private equity fund, chances are you don't love your new overlords. And I think that nobody really talks Talks about about that. that. I know. It's funny. The same way Mm -hmm. that hedge funds and bankers are vilified. I mean, if we're going to vilify one, vilify them all, right? They (laughs) all... (laughs) Yeah. No, you have private companies, you have public companies, and then you obviously have companies that have been bought by a private equity firm. By the way, a lot of times these private equity firms are buying private companies. But... Mm -hmm. If you have a company that's public, the fiduciary duty is like to the shareholders. It's not Mm -hmm. to the employees. And with a private equity firm, this is their investment. They buy the company. And if you think about what they're trying to grow, it's EBITDA. What is EBITDA? Revenues minus costs. Well, whose costs are those? The salaries of employees. And so the the way that they, right, the way that they get valuations up is cutting costs. And so if you are the person who is at the private equity firm, And making these decisions, it actually has consequences for the lives of people who are on the other side. And I don't think people think about that. It's funny. For whatever reason, it's just not part of the public discourse in the same way that people who are in and out of the markets all day long are. As right. far as if you're at a head, yeah, if you're at a hedge fund and you're just like making bets on, and again, I want to be very clear what happens to a company's share price can absolutely have effects on individual people, like One massive effects, percent. right? Yeah. So if you are shorting the crap again, out of the stock, at, I was working right, at, you were working Lehman at Lehman Brothers, <laughs> where Greenlight Capital right. decided yeah. to, you know, yes. exact yeah. vengeance upon us for a bad <laughs> meeting with Aaron Callen. Exactly. No, but, so it's I, not like you're we've been not. On both sides of yes. It. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Actually, so that brings us to one more point. And Jen, we had spoken about this a little bit too, which is there is the lifestyle. And are you going to actually like what you're doing? And everyone wants these jobs, but do you? Do you like like it? Are you going to like it? Is it right for your skill set? And so the test that I was talking to my husband and he was like, the test that I always heard, and actually I had heard this, but it was more for investment banking versus sales and trading. But he was like for private equity, right? Private equity versus like a hedge fund. If you are opening up the Wall Street Journal, are you going to the market section is the fast pace of what's happening day to day and like the movements and all that kind of, is that intriguing to you? Or is it the story? Are you going to the business section? And are you more interested in the story of the business? And I think that's a really important question to ask. It's also, are you someone who wants to be making deals or do you want to just decide, you know what? I like this investment. Let's do it. Do you want to be able to pull the trigger? Because how comfortable are you with risk? I think that's another thing. And yeah, People don't think about this all the time when thinking about themselves and evaluating their personality and their intellect, but how comfortable are you with taking risk, with saying, this is my view, I'm going to go express it, and there's money on the line, and there's personal credibility on the line, and there's my job on the line. And by the way, you could get it wrong for a reason that was not your quote-unquote fault. You could have decided this. at the wrong time. If you shorted GameStop, you're like this. Company you know they're that's making a movie about that. Are they really? Yeah, no, I'm like, actually really excited to see it. it, looks good. it <laughs> I looks totally really want to see good. it too. But yeah. no, I mean, like you decide. You're looking at the fundamentals. You're like GameStop. The valuation, the fundamentals don't make sense. I'm going to short this thing, and all of a sudden, it's like a meme stock, and you're just like, what happened? Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter that you are quote unquote right. Right. I mean, like you COVID. Have to be right? really humble. Yeah. You, there's just a lot of discipline, mental and emotional, yeah. that goes into taking risk. 
And how are you going to feel about losing a shit ton of money? I mean, because it's going to happen. You're not always going to pick winners. How does that feel? Are you okay with that? I think I actually would have been a horrible research analyst, PM. I would suck at that. No, I think you would have been great because I think you you would have been, yeah, because you would have been like, here's my recommendation to the portfolio manager. And they're the ones who have to live with the risk. You could be like, I made a recommendation. It's your fault for listening to me. What do I know? But usually (laughs) if you are going the path of like the research analyst, the ultimate goal is to become a portfolio manager one day. I feel like that's ultimately like, if you are good, maybe, maybe, maybe maybe not. That's true. That's true. So this is me personally, by the way. So I did work in sponsors and I was like, I hate this whole deal-making thing. I don't really give a shit about this legal document. I I mean, Jen knows. We were talking about this. Jen was like, you need to do the CFO function for our job. And I was like, I am (laughs) no. Like when I was studying engineering, it was funny. I loved like the academic side. And then I would get into a lab environment and I would like need to do something in a test tube and it would like implode. I'm like, I don't, I don't care about the doing stuff. I just like understanding it. But um, back to just like private equity versus like a hedge fund you are doing deals. Like you actually have to get in there. You have to change the companies. And if you are at a hedge fund, you don't have to like get in there and do as much of the dirty work. So depends, to speak. Right. You depends. could be in a research right. role and kind of sit in not an ivory tower, but in a glass <laughs> office and a Manhattan skyscraper yeah. and say, well, here's what I think about this. Here's, you know, here's what the fundamentals tell me. And then yeah. you're going to have somebody who's a counterpoint to you, who's a trader rolling their sleeves up, drenched in sweat all day, looking at each incremental move in the market for the absolute right moment to execute that trade Which, and they're yeah. in the weeds. It's interesting because I wanted to touch on this. Like there's also, even for someone who's a trader, there are traders who are the portfolio manager. Some portfolio managers executing. never touch the market. They yeah. will send down a decision in like a- Your ivory tower. Those, like, yeah, the little- piece of paper floats down to the traders and says, buy or sell. Yeah. And then it's up to the traders and they'll say, I care at these levels, blah, blah, blah. It's up to the traders to actually do the physical act of purchasing or selling something, of getting the trade on the books. And depending on the scope of the trade, it could be, hey, you've got this much bandwidth in which to do it. Or it could be, if you don't get this done in this infinitesimally small margin- Yeah. The trade doesn't make sense. Well, that right? was exactly what Steve Haggerty was saying in our t- in our mm-hmm. conversation with him. He's like, you know, I would see these portfolio managers sitting over the, the trader's shoulder, like hit that, hit that. Because mm-hmm. if you don't hit it at the right price, like now all of a sudden that trade, to your point, doesn't make sense anymore. Why doesn't the PM just like, do it himself at that point? <laughs> He's got a Bloomberg. I guess. <laughs> but no, but no, you're right. Absolutely. So execution and risk-taking, execution and strategy rather go hand in hand. They are just opposite sides of the same coin. You can have the most brilliant idea, but if you can't pull it off, it doesn't matter. If you are the person that recommends an investment and the portfolio manager acts on it, and then it does poorly, you feel that versus- Oh, 1 million percent. I'm not saying you don't feel it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. For you, Kristen, someone who is- averse to risk-taking, yeah. I think that that still would have been a great role for you because you did have that distance. Instead, I just decided to like do the pure academic thing and teach instead. That That's was- great. So one of the things that we were talking about that we kind of got sidetracked on there is, again, how do you know what's right for you? So is it the deal-making versus the deal frequency, I guess? Yeah. Like, is it the nitty-gritty? Uh, you talked about legal documents. That is not something to gloss over. Like mm-hmm. the amount of paperwork that you are going to go through in your due diligence process, in the actual process of executing a deal at a private equity firm. Like there is just a lot of tiny minutia and detail about this one trade. You were going to know this trade better than you know your spouse, better than you know your kids, because you're going to be living and breathing this one deal in this one company. At a hedge fund, regardless of the strategy, you are going to know much more about a broader spectrum of things, whether it be a broader spectrum of companies. Because again, even if you're an equity long short fund, you're not going to be trading one stock long and short as your entire position. There's Mm -hmm. going to be at least more than one stock. Granted, we've said this before. There's a lot of convergence between hedge funds and private equity. Is there a situation where there you could be making an investment in a small business and like there is some kind of legal sure. Yeah. I'm not saying like you'll never see a legal document in your hundred percent. If you are on the credit side, you might need to understand the organizational structure because it matters whether the bonds were issued at the holding company or the operating company. Like these are like little things that that's more of like a distressed situation, but depending on the type of investments you're making, sure, if you might need to get into documents. Credit, 
Yeah, you need to know a lot about that company, almost as much as you'd need to know if you were buying the stock. Just you need to know a different set of facts. Um, to your point, Jen, the amount of legal documents and the deal making, you're going to have more of that with private equity. Do you yes. like that? And ask yourself, really, though, but like, really, do you? People do talk you? talk about like, the, you know, this big distinction between even we've talked about this a lot between the two kind of halves of the bank in terms of do you like a project based lifestyle or do you like right. something more fast paced? Right. And that sounds like such a silly thing because at any given point in your life, you might feel inclined towards either. There's, it could go either way. Exactly. It could go either way. It really just depends on what the material is. But just know that if you're going into private equity, that fast-paced adrenaline, things changing all the time, that is going to be a relatively tiny piece of your life. And it's going to be much more big, very long-term projects. Now, it might be the week that you're finally closing the deal or selling yep. the company or taking a private or whatever it might be. But like the life cycle of things is going to be much slower. Yeah. And yes, there are a lot of different strategies at hedge funds. There are some hedge funds that hold positions for years. But you better believe those oh. people are watching those positions every <laughs> yeah. single minute of every single day. But so what we're getting at here is that you might be killing yourself or freaking out and saying mm -hmm. like, oh my God, I want to go to PE because I hear I can make so much money. I didn't have the right internship my freshman year in college. My life is over. Please don't feel that way. Yeah. Because A, from one second to the next, the industry may shift. Mm -hmm. B, there are so many opportunities beyond these mega funds that if this is something you want to try on for size, there are at least tens of thousands of private equity firms of varying size and scope that yeah. you do have an opportunity to break into. And C, do you actually want this for yourself? You really That's have the main to think question. about that. You can get so caught up in this wave of, I want to do this thing because I'm on the prestige train. I want the thing that's the most- That everyone else these, says I should that want. That everyone else says I should want. And I think it's unfortunate that if you are coming in as an investment banking analyst and you haven't really even started to work, you don't know what you want. Correct. Now you've signed up. I am almost 40 and I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. The idea that my children might have to make a decision- I mean, if it keeps going at its current pace and we extract from that data, they're going to need to make a decision in the next six months what they want right. to be when they're 25 years old. They are seven and five. I don't want that for my kids. Yeah. So we don't want that for you guys. At least, listen, if you are one of these people who's known since birth that you want to be in either of these fields, if you want to be in private equity or hedge fund, awesome. More power yeah. to you. But you are the exception, I think, rather than the rule. And, and if I you don't so get a job people, in private equity, and if it's okay. not at this mega fund- <laughs> It will and it's, all be okay. Yeah. I also, we should fact check this. I did hear that they did pause the recruiting. I don't know how much there is true to that, but we did have someone comment that. And I did see it on uh, Litquidity, uh, who also got a message about that. So it's possible that they did decide to pause it and they're going to start it up a little bit later. Why did people they say have, they paused it? Because the because people weren't prepared. They I mean okay, again so you that's have, which makes again, sense. So we're talking Why about would this they be prepared? happening in real time that yeah. maybe honestly maybe the silver lining of all of this is that having gone to such an extreme, we are seeing the absolute extremes of this now in real time. And it'll go and back the other way. Back. Yeah, that so. there will be some sanity. I hope so. I hope that calmer minds prevail and everyone realizes that these opportunities will be there. These candidates will be there. And I understand the genesis of this focus on, okay, what's the next step? What's the next thing? Three steps ahead, always thinking yeah. towards the future. But I think there is so much to be said for building a long-term relationship with a firm, getting to know yourself within a firm. Getting and to know the people at the firm. Kristen, Thanks. you've talked yeah. about how much you moved around in your career. Yeah. And now granted, a lot of that was due to circumstances <laughs> beyond your well, control. I mean, but, ironically, I went into CDOs because at the time, the structured products, people were making money hand over fist. more about yourself, not yeah. more about the products, but more about yeah, yeah. yourself, mm -hmm. which is something that only time and maturity and experience will give you. Right. You probably would have made very different decisions, right? You talk now about how much you love the academic side of things. That wasn't something that you were talking about when you were 22 years old. You were like, yeah. I just need to pay the rent. Blah. Right. You know? No, it was student loans. Right. I need to pay rent. I wanted to move to New York City and New York City is, New York City, New York City is expensive as fuck. Like that was yes. the whole thing. So to wrap this up, um, <laughs> we... 
we are just scratching the surface of exit opportunities here. Yeah. But for all of you who are feeling overwhelmed by any kind of pressure with respect to these two exit opportunities specifically, we are here for you guys as support. We are here for you guys as, as part of this community. Just know that this too shall pass. And we want to hear from you. We want to hear about your experiences. So if you are going through either the on-cycle or off-cycle recruiting process, please let us know. We want to hear your stories and, yep. and kind of you know, and what I, the successes and pitfalls yeah. are. I know people that do want to get into that. And like you can hear someone say, oh, it's fine if you don't get into Blackstone KKR. If you want that, we want to help you. And then by the way, yeah. you could decide two years in, you're like, actually, I don't want to do this. And I'm going to go be like Kristen and Jen and start a podcast about it. <laughs> I am going to be putting out some stuff on LBO mechanics. We are working on trying to put together a lot of videos. I mean, Jen, obviously on the sales and trading side, and then me more on the sort of corporate finance leverage buyout side. We hope that you guys found this episode valuable. And I feel like it was a lot of just random musings by us, but there is some good stuff in there. If you like listen through the rants. <laughs> um, One million Hopefully. percent. And yeah, just some housekeeping before we go. So we had announced on our social media that we would be doing a contest for everyone who submitted a written review of our podcast. Please, if you haven't done so yet, if you've written us a review or if you haven't had a chance to, please write us a written review and then screenshot that review and send it to questions at wallstreetskinny.com. And if you and already wrote be, a review, make sure you yeah, send it you so we know it was one, you. If you haven't written one yet, there is still time. We had set August 1st as the deadline for that, but so many great reviews are now coming in. We want to extend that deadline to August 15th. So please keep submitting those reviews. Please keep sending them to us. We'll put up a yeah. reminder on our social media as well. But that really helps our podcast reach yep. more people. And yeah, and Kristen had spoken about some of the videos we're trying to get on, on our social media. We're going to be pulling back the pace of those videos on social media. And that's not because we don't have more material to share with you guys. But we are working on kind of phase two of our business where we will be producing more in-depth tutorial content and ultimately be offering consulting services within our business. We've gotten so many requests for, can you do a Zoom call with me? Can you meet me at a coffee shop? I will carry a bag of money. We appreciate that and love it from you guys. We just aren't there yet right now. So we are working on getting that side of our business up and running. So if you have feedback, if you have questions, anything you'd love to see from us, please let us know. You know where to find us. And we also are going to be starting to offer classes that you can sign up for. So stay tuned. Just bear with us while we get this all up and running. We are building the plane as we're flying it. We love you. We appreciate you listening and uh, we'll talk to you again next week. Thanks guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Wall Street Skinny. We are more than just a podcast. So follow us on TikTok and Instagram at the Wall Street Skinny. If you're a visual learner, we have content that will help get you up the curve from valuation to Excel to Bond Fundamentals 101. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where we will be publishing in-depth tutorials on all this and more. 